This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. Okay, so welcome to the show, Call to Adventure. This is John Duckworth, Alex Opolis, and with us today is Kelly Jean Moore, the owner and founder of Mission Yoga in Charleston, South Carolina. She's been teaching yoga and training teachers for over 10 years now, and she is an inspired storyteller known for her humor and patient commitment to students. In 2011, she also became a certified rolfer, adding another dimension to her teaching and her knowledge. She has developed her own method, Sarayana, which she describes as a method of seeing and contextualizing the varied elements of healing and awakening in our lives. I've had the good fortune to be challenged and inspired by Kelly Jean for many years now. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, Well, in looking over some of the things that you responded to, I figured we could just dive right into it. And one of the things that you mentioned was pretty interesting about having a baby being the most transcendent experience of all. Oh, and yeah. you said, ask yeah. me about labor. Yeah, ask so, me about labor. Here we go. I'm asking you about labor. All right. So, I, so a little preliminary information. I did not want children for, you know, most of my... You know, in teenage years, young women sometimes fantasize about, you know, what their future is going to be like and how mm-hmm. they might be as a parent. And I did not want children. I was adamant. Was this in direct relationship to your childhood? Or? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I think that you know, as children, we, what we see modeled, we assume those are the ways that things have to be. Yeah. And um, all of the models that I saw, whether it was on television or whether it mm. was... Um, in my home, they just weren't, they weren't what I was looking for, what I thought that, you know, I would want. So I just pushed it aside. And then um, getting into yoga and um, healing practices in my 20s, I had the good fortune of hanging out with and taking care of some people's kids. Basically, as a yoga teacher, you have no money and you're just, you're just busting ass constantly to, you know, pay the bills and, um, you know, there's a new teacher every week. So I was scrubbing floors, quite literally. I was cleaning people's bathrooms. I was working front desk at a gym. I was teaching yoga. I was babysitting. And this was already in my mid-20s. Other people had real jobs. I was just hustling for almost nothing and a lot of childcare. And so a friend of mine, Luciana, um, who's a really celebrated spin instructor and master spin instructor in the city and who travels all over the world, I, I took care a little bit of her kids when they were very young and I um, looked along her bookshelf one day and picked up a book called Spiritual Midwifery which is a really famous book by Ina Mae Gaskin who um, in the I think it was in the late 60s early 70s her and her husband got a busload full of people drove out to Virginia and did this thing called the farm and they had all these midwives and they were just everybody's having babies and this book documents 
the process of pregnancy and labor as a transcendent or a sort of spiritual, or, a, or if not spiritual, then a very human, very raw, very natural experience. And when I say spiritual or transcendent, I think this is why I wanted you to ask me about this. Mm-hmm. People think of transcendence as moving out of the body, as um, leaving the self, of it being otherworldly, right. or sort of non-human, or greater than human. But my experience with labor was, you know, I obviously, well, it's not obvious, and it's no judgment around whether you do or you don't do it this way, but I did do it at the birth center, and we did do it, you know, no medication. And, um, and it was not transcendent in the way, so, well, so backtrack, Ina May, I looked at this book, I read this book, and I was like, oh, this could be a beautiful thing. This could be a really powerful thing. And then I'll, mm. like, it's like something flipped, like t- just turned on a dime in my brain, just like, <laughs> oh, and I can do it the way I want to do it. And not just labor and not just, not just pregnancy and labor, but I could reframe all of this. Marriage can look how I want it to look. Life can look how I want it to. You know, it's like all of a sudden, the things that I was doing in my life right then um, reached back into my past and just kind of, like bitch slapped me like you know that mo- that moment in Moonstruck where she's like snap out of it and she slaps him it was that it was like immediate that happened to you oh. yeah and then all, all of a sudden I was baby crazy and I was I was like oh I've got to have a baby I've got to have a baby I'm gonna have a baby I'm gonna this is gonna be amazing I'm gonna touch the face of God and I did but it wasn't it um, wasn't otherworldly it didn't take you it out of it wasn't otherworldly I mean I, I did lose track of time uh-huh you know, there was a quality of absorption, mm. but it wasn't ethereal. It was very rugged, very earthbound. Um, I mean, I, the best way to describe it is I was so in the moment that nothing else existed, but I was part of everything all at once. But I was so in the moment. Every single mm. wave of contractions and then the release um, I mean, it was hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. I mean, by the time I was actually at the birth center, it was about nine in the morning, and I had started labor the night before, or actually the afternoon before, but it was basically like resting labor, so I was able to roll around my house and just be like, okay, I'm in labor, I'll take a bath, I'll eat some sorbet, I'll watch True Blood, whatever. <laughs> no urgency. Right. No urgency, and then, yeah. you know, nine in the morning, I'm there, and we were there until about five in the evening, and by, between nine in the morning and five in the evening, it was like my whole life happened. And in the blink of an eye, simultaneously. Um, and people talk about it being, oh, it's so painful, blah, blah, blah. But it's not pain in the way that, like, you break your leg and it hurts and it hurts and it hurts and it hurts. It's a, it's a, it's a pain or it's a sensation that is so commanding and purposeful that it carries you. I mean, you're just a it's wash a beautiful in way it. to describe it. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, was, I was floored by the experience and if I if I thought my body could sustain it or I could handle another kid I would do it again I don't think I don't think I can one and done <laughs> one and done but um, talk a little bit about your childhood because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in sort of your uh, your exploration with theater mm-hmm. um, but prior to that happening talk a little bit about your childhood because you describe it as sort of a, a very rocky start yeah um so many old stories that I could dig up. The the fastest way, or maybe the Did simplest. Did you have siblings? I I do have two two uh, full siblings mm-hmm. and quite a lot of half sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that I don't really know. We all know each other via Facebook now, which is an interesting thing. But um, basically, my mother, Bonnie, left home at 14 and got married at 14. Wow. Mm -hmm. And to my father, Tony, who I think was probably 16. Wow. Maybe 18. And uh, they both, well, I think, I don't know that much about my father's side of the family, but they, um, they, were, they were somewhat level humans, but my mother's side of the family is, is pretty fraught with, you know, there's a lot of um, abuse and drug addiction and alcohol abuse and just a lot of complicated relationships, people not being able to care for their kids, grandmamas caring for grandbabies instead of the parents, things like that. Just a lot of complex, I mean, it was just very poor. So my, my grandfather, my mother's father, uh, grew up in Greenwood, South Carolina. I mean, they had a dirt floor, and I'm not exaggerating, they were literally sharecroppers. This is a, um, it was a, there's a, f- a funny story about Greenwood, and, and now it's like, well, no offense to Greenwood, but I, from what I understand, it's pretty bottomed out, and all of the business left, and now there are a lot of very low-income people who have no jobs and who are using a lot of drugs. Yeah, so you drive through a lot parts of, of the state, and I'm sure it exists everywhere, but yeah. you just see the desperation. Right. It's a, it's a rough place. Mm-hmm. And so now this was, of course, many, 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 many years ago when my grandfather grew up there, but he grew up with a lot of kids. His mother died early. Um, so he had different stepmamas coming through the house, um, and all of the kids fought over food. I mean, it was a rough growing up. And, and these then, are the patterns that you end up inheriting. Yes, yes. And so, and then my mother, um, you know, left home because she struggled with the family dynamic. Uh, you know that I don't want to go into too much, but she was already uh, off and on along with my father drugs at this point whatever I mean I whatever they could get their hands on and so my mother had my sister at 14 my brother at 16 and had me at 18 my goodness she lost I think two in the mix there as well um I was actually born high a different experience than your child yeah birth. <laughs> yeah um yeah he was born jamming out to krishna das <laughs> so <laughs> very different <laughs> very well, different the power of changing the narrative uh, yeah right I yeah mean, a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing and um i was in and out of foster care my sister and my brother were in a trailer with my mother men came and went there was abuse she was often on drugs I was in foster care uh, off and on for the first three years and then eventually adopted by my grandfather, my mother's father, which was an interesting choice for everyone to make considering that patterns follow patterns. And so my mother's issues have to pour out of her relationship to those people who birthed her and I was basically passed to one of those people. So Essentially it was like a, passing backwards. Right. Passing backwards. Along the line rather yeah. than transcending. Yeah, and exactly. Healing. And exactly. You know, I've always had this uh, idea that, you know, because our culture talks about this, you, you know, you get up and you put on your boots and if you work through it, you can make it, you uh, know. And yeah. you realize as you get older um, and you work with different populations that some of these issues are just really systemic. 
Yeah. You know, and, and changing the pattern, changing the narrative is not so easy. Right? And it's unusual. And in fact, that, that's a valid point because I hear often, this is the land of opportunity. Right. Anyone who wants anything, it's there for them. And that's not really true. Right. Um, it is the rare human. And I don't mean special. I, I think I just mean lucky. It is the lucky human who can in any way change that narrative. And in, even as an adult, and even with the, 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 the life of change that I've created, what I find, if I'm being very honest, as I move into my 40s, is that at my core, so much is still holding true sure. to that original mm. narrative, so much. I mean, I'm you know digging around in there with a therapist, I'm digging around in there with my partner and with my child and seeing that as much of the narrative as I've tra- changed on the surface. Still who you are. Still who I am, those right. core patterns hold. And, um, and it's whether or not we can, I think, acknowledge them and befriend them, you know, be aware of them, be aware I mean, of the, them. The first thing. So yeah. you, 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 the narrative begins to change when you arrive, I think at the age of 14 at Furman university and are introduced to theater. Is that well, so yeah, I actually got into theater in middle school. Okay. Um, and then in high school got into the gifted and talented program there. Um, with all all the other kids in the class, except for bar one other guy, it was all sophomores and or I'm sorry, juniors and seniors. So I walked in as a freshman, like I'm here, you know. And they were really, really cool, and they had dyed hair, and they were like, they were they all played instruments, and you know, read cool things, and dabbled in hallucinogens but only you know to explore consciousness and it was very hip and i was not hip i was like oh hey um i don't know but um how how i mean just how did you get introduced to theater to begin with so random i was in chorus in school in middle school um i could kind of sing not really that well as an alto you can tell by my deep voice um but i did get my start like singing and in chorus and then uh in eighth grade we did a play we did a musical the chorus did a musical and it was like a country uh version of a christmas carol Mm -hmm. and i played bell and i had a big antebellum gown and i got to sing a um solo on stage and uh, my heart was just captured i was riveted i was happy um you know because i didn't fit in i didn't understand how to fit in with people at that age and not a lot of middle schoolers do but i was exceptionally odd i think and um you know i've never really thought about it and i'm sort of thinking like how could you never think about that but theater and acting out Mm -hmm. what a beautiful way to escape Mm -hmm. your reality right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but also a beautiful way to I mean, if I'm being very honest, it was a huge amount of attention mm. and affirmation. And right? acceptance, right? And acceptance. And within a community of people who... Right. It seems to attract uh, 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 a certain crowd who might be labeled as, you know, misfits or mm-hmm. unusual, you know, the mm-hmm. creative world. And, mm-hmm. and, and that was like, oh, these are my people. Yeah, these are my, this is my home. And uh, so that started. That started in eighth grade, and they said they said you can audition for these different levels of theater in high school. And they told me about the um, the level the the, you know they they had like four different kinds of classes that you could get into, but they were like you can audition for the top level, but you'll never get in. They don't take freshmen. They don't. They've never taken freshmen. And that year they took 
myself and they took my friend, well, he wasn't really my friend, but he kind of became my friend, Jason Jones, who was another guy that was in my school with me. And we were the only two freshmen who had ever been allowed into this upper level theater program. And then inspired by another uh, young woman named Medea, who like, what? Her name is Medea. She was so cool. Um, (laughs) She went to governor's school that year and I was like, I'm going to do that. And I auditioned in 10th grade and so then went and, you know, it was a place where, you know, I show up for five weeks and I'm away from my parents. I'm away from all the identifiers of high school. And I'm in this, we all had to audition to be there. So everyone there is on some level talented, yeah. you know? So there's this holding together, this sense of, of mutual respect, regard and acknowledgement right out of the gate. And you, it wasn't a highly competitive experience. I, some, some things like this I think are, but in my, at least in, in my mind at the time, what I felt was just uh, an immense amount of pleasure to be around, you know, these teenagers who cared so much and loved something so much, Yeah, you know, and had something to share and offer. And it just felt. Well, was the start, you know, yeah. I, um, I want to talk about creative process mm-hmm. because you were the person who introduced me originally to this idea of life as creative process. Yeah. Um, and so I think that transitions really nicely into the next call to adventure we want to get into. Um, but before we do that, we're going to play a song. Oh, yes. And this first song is by PJ Harvey called Sheila Nagig, which I recently learned is uh, like a fertility, fertility symbol. Fertility symbol, yeah. Like a carving with a giant uh-huh. vulva. Yes, she is. Um, <laughs> Learned that I was this like, morning. <laughs> perfect. All right. So, She's got a big hoo-ha. <laughs> let's check it out. Right. I've been trying to show you over and over. Look at these, my childbearing hips. Look at these, my ruby red ruby lips. Look at these, my work strong arms. And you've got to see my bottle full of charm. I lay it all at your feet. You turn around and say back to me. He said, She
All right, we're back. That was PJ Harvey with Sheila Nagig. We're here, John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, with Kelly Jean Moore. And we were just talking about uh, your start at the Governor's School of the Arts, rocking combat boots and smoking closed cigarettes and finding <laughs> your people. My people. And so you did this. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll cut to New Orleans, mm-hmm. which prior to yoga, um, this seems to happen quite often uh, in transformational experiences and healing is you kind of got to hit a low point. Mm-hmm. It causes you to light a spark to get out of that low point. Mm-hmm. And you described this time in New Orleans as lost in New Orleans, drink, party, till I hate myself. Mm, did I say that? You did. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, New Orleans can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've heard the stories. It's really true. You it's were true. you were in a low place. Yeah. And it, didn't, it wasn't working for you. No. Um, and it seems like your fascination with yoga was born out of this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then how did that happen? Like, how did yoga come into your life? Sort of randomly. I mean, as so many meaningful things yeah. do, they, they, you know, while we we're on the way to... over and over again right, when we're talking to people. Yeah, just, synchronicity. I mean, pick your S word. I don't know. Yeah. Shit happens. There's another <laughs> S for you. Um, I was in New Orleans thinking I... So my sister, you know, we talked a little bit about... I have a brother and a sister. My sister was actually adopted and raised by my aunt in New Orleans. So she grew up there. Mm-hmm. And my brother was raised in Boston by some other folks. And so... I would spend time in New Orleans on occasion growing up and, and went there actually after, in between um, first and second year of college and spent my summer there. So I went back to New Orleans thinking that I was just on a stopover and I was going to LA to pursue my acting career. I, I dropped out of college. I, at hmm. some point, just realized I wasn't doing, I wasn't utilizing it. I was ready to do something. I, didn't, I just didn't want to be there. I wanted to be somewhere else and um, was on my way to LA. And uh, I, got, I got an agent, I did all these things, but I also was just drinking a lot and getting really wild. And, um, and, and for some people that's fun, but I actually wasn't having any fun. I wasn't enjoying it. I was just doing it. And I, I know now that I was doing it because I was scared to death to take that step out to LA. And because one of my professors in school said to me right before I left, um, if you, if you put yourself out there 100%, you're going to make it. But if you don't, you won't. You're going to see this dream pass you by. And I was so scared. I was so scared. I mean, to this day, like if there was ever a regret, I don't regret. I mean, like so many amazing things have happened. But I was, it, it, the, the problem with theater, the problem with the arts, of course, is that you're like, oh, healing and all that stuff. Yes. And there's a process that we go through that really opens us and transforms us if we are creative, well, we're all creative humans, but if we embrace our creativity. However, when you choose it as a livelihood, there's, it's fraught with rejection. Yeah, and you're theaters, naked. you're naked all the time, and people are saying, you're too tall, you're too thin, your nose is too big, your chest is flat. You know, and as a w- young woman who was really, really, uh, yes, I wore combat boots, yes, I was brash. Wounded. But I was wounded, you know? I was extremely, I was hiding in plain sight, like screaming at the top of my lungs so no one would see me. And the history in your family of, of patterning of, yeah. you know, alcohol abuse and drug abuse and these sorts of things was readily available to you. Right. It was readily so, available. So I basically recreated in a way the trauma mm-hmm. of isolation and alienation that I had experienced as a child, but I did it to myself. So I had a lot of shame around it while I was doing it. Um, and then I 
caught up with an old friend from college, um, Christopher Mills, who was here opening Redux. Oh, really? that's right. That's mm-hmm. how, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up in yeah. Charleston, is he and I, um, sorry, I got a little teary-eyed. Hmm. Mm. He and I uh, decided to date, or sort of crashed into each other after years of being friends. And it was a wonderful, terrible, as those kinds of things are, <laughs> wonderful, terrible. And I moved to Charleston, and I was here only for a few months when I got a job at Sharky's Pizza, which doesn't exist oh, yeah. anymore I down on King Street. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get back into the arts. I'm going to get back into the arts. I'm going to do, um, I'm going to be a performance artist. I have a, like, a whole notebook full of performance artists, I, uh, performance art ideas. Um, I was really into Cindy Sherman at the time, and I was obsessed, okay. you know, so I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. So that way it's like acting, but it's not acting. You know, I can, I can control it more. I can control the whole outcome. It's on my so, own terms. It's on my own terms, and nobody's telling me that I'm too thin or I'm too fat yeah, or I'm yeah. too quirky to be the ingenue. You know, fuck that. I'm going to be my own ingenue. And that was, that was where I was then. And I went to a random yoga class, and I had done a little bit of yoga in New Orleans, and I had done a little bit through theater, because movement exploration is a big piece of theater, and so is the exploration of, of the sort of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. So movement and the psyche and those relationships, I was already very familiar with when I went to my first yoga class. And I literally went home after my very first yoga class and, and laid across my bed and looked at Chris and said, I'm going to be a yoga teacher someday. <laughs> and he was like, what? It clicked. Yeah, it clicked. It was immediate. It was immediate. As, what, you know. Can you describe that? Like, what was it? Or, or was it just indescribable? You just no, knew immediately. I, um, again, felt like myself. You move your body with some level of attention and mindfulness yeah. and breathe into it, and it changes a lot very quickly. Even that. Now, there's mm-hmm. a limit to what that can do. There's a limit to that benefit, but it changes a lot. And I just felt in that Shavasana, like lying there on my back, covered in sweat, (laughs) in in the dark, with some sort of, I don't know what it was. It could have been, um, I think it was Lynn's class, Lynn Talley, who's um, a big mover and shaker out in the yoga world now, uh, still, and is amazing, and no longer teaches the, the power grind, just FYI, but she's an amazing teacher and friend. And, uh, Heck, maybe it was her. Maybe it was her yeah. magic that she wove. And I feel like this would be a good moment to talk about something you mentioned on the break oh, yeah. about your mother, Bonnie, who passed away from cancer, mm-hmm. and the story you shared with us about something you told her about yeah. transforming. Yeah, I was sitting... So she, she and I became friends only about 10 years ago. We didn't have a lot mm-hmm. of interaction before then. And um, over that 10 years... It wasn't mother-daughter exactly, you know, because I didn't remember her as my mother, but... Um, there was a connection. There's a connection, and she was... A, she, unlike myself, was a very sweet, very gentle human. I mean, she's been poor. She was poor her whole life, and then she... She would cook for her neighbor. She would take all of the old neighbors in the trailer park food. She would take care of their... Um, grandbabies she would give them her last cigarette like she would do I mean she had a drug problem and then when she finally got off drugs she sobered up but then they had her on legal drugs for the rest of her life because she was sick all the time so then you know you couldn't I could never talk on the phone with her after seven because she would get like (laughs) you know so I was like oh god I can't I can't deal with this I'd talk to her two days later and she wouldn't have she wouldn't even remember talking to me and I'd be like ah we gotta have this whole conversation over but we did become friends and um, and then I got really mad at her when she got s- sick with cancer while I was pregnant. 
uh, I was just like, way to go, lady. Way to steal my thunder. Like, you messed it up on the front end. You're going to mess it up on the back end. I'm supposed to be having a baby right now. This isn't fair. Here's the hard shell coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And I pushed her away quite a bit. Yeah. And that's really still very hard for me to, um, to swallow. But... I do remember sitting in the car um, after Owen was born and while she was still alive, I think I was at the CVS probably binge eating gummy bears or some like (laughs) crap candy because I was just so stressed out that first year after he was born. Um, And I told her, I know you can't, you know, I know you can't go back and change the things, the choices that you made, but I want you to know that I... I'm going to love Owen so much and the, the genetics that I carry in this body that he's carrying forward are yours and they're your mother's and they're her mother's and, and so forth and so on. And I am going to do the best I can to heal this family moving forward to heal the DNA, mm-hmm. you know, because epigenetics is a thing. The, yeah. We have all of these things we carry in our body that can be triggered or not triggered. And if we generation after generation triggers them because of patterns and habits, then it's more They're likely to, for them to turn on more easily. Right. So all of these things, um, you know. So through Owen. Through Owen, you can I, can, heal I can love backwards, I can and love backwards in yeah. time. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Um, and. Uh, so meaningful when when um, you feel that process happening because it's back and forth as you're um, envisioning this healing through your child you realize that it's healing you at the same time yeah and that makes it even all the more meaningful right it goes both ways um, yeah that's the thing about time it's not what we think it is right so you know it's this river that runs forward and backward and and we can we can put the energy out and we can let it move back through us and we you know we can let it be fluid it does not have to be always in one direction always progressing forward well i feel like this is the perfect opportunity to listen to a song called time which is the revelator by gillian welch Yeah. 
Okay, we're back. John Duckworth, Alexopolis, Call to Adventure, and that was Gillian Welch with Time, the Revelator. We're here with Kelly Jean Moore, and you, your third, you listed your third Call to Adventure as heading off to Boulder, Colorado to attend the Rolfing Institute. Mm -hmm. well, I find it really interesting that, that, to back up, that you chose this sort of body work mm -hmm. um, instead of going the route that seemed more comfortable to you, which was more cerebral, which mm -hmm. you tend towards. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's the quintessential sort of call to adventure, stepping into the unknown, stepping into some fear and discomfort, knowing that it would probably be the right thing to do, but not the easy thing to do. Well, would you, and, and, and to add to that, would you describe, because the bo it's more than the body, right? It's the yeah. body to the emotion, to the heart. And so would you say the work through the body led more to the heart as opposed to the head? Yeah, the, bo the body goes, well, it, all directions lead home. Right. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you can't, all roads lead home. So you can work on the body. Uh, you know, people asked um, Iyengar, who's a really famous yoga teacher, um, why he was so obsessed with alignment with the body. Because at the time when he came out, there were other forms that were less alignment-based, and he was really obsessed with, uh, with alignment, getting things precise and right. Um, and he said, well, tell me this, is that your body sitting in that chair or is that your soul? And Ida Rolf, the founder of Rolfing said, uh, when asked, because she never was trying to fix people's pain. A lot of my clients come to me because they have bad knees. And the truth is that Rolfing is not about your pain. Pain is a side effect of misalignment potentially in your head, your heart, or your body potentially, not always. Mm. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and you blew out your knee 20 years ago and we ain't going to fix it. And you, the, your boundary there is learning to, learning to accept that your knee hurts and that you're going to die. You know, you're, it's all, it's all going to go eventually. No amount of Rolfing is going to take that away. Yeah. What was my point? Dude? I, so Ida Rolf said um, that the, the process of Rolfing, it was organizing the body and gravity, but really under the under the assumption that a body better organized in gravity was a body where energy flowed more um, correctly, oh, which okay. meant that our psyche, our, that everything, so chakras in the yoga world or the um, chi flowing through the dantian, you know, and the, and the different um, meridians in the body, all of that being affected as well. And she's, they were like, well, then if you're into energy, man, because this was like the 60s, if you're so into energy, man, like, why are you just dropping elbows into people's shoulders? And she said, well, it's the only thing I can get my hands on. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Right. It's just right. the, only, right. it's the only thing I can, I can know that I'm moving. Oh, I just tapped, sorry. Right. I can know that I'm moving it, and I can see the effects and the reverberations through this person. To the, to the end of, of essentially more fluidity and, and greater freedom in, in a lot of areas. Yeah. We hold, we, where we hold in our body um, directly hooks into where we hold in our memories. Hmm. So how, how, did, how did Rolfing, how did this process add to your idea or vision of what yoga is? Yeah, well, I mean, it was pretty impactful because I felt very limited by... You were disillusioned yeah, a little bit with yoga a bit at, disillusioned. The, at the time. Yeah. That you, right. Yeah. Um, I was never disillusioned with yoga. Yoga's large. It's everywhere. It's all the time. It's both a set of techniques that are that are fluid and variable, and it's also the goal. The goal is the the goal is yoga, not to do yoga, but to find yourself 
in yoga, in union, in balance, or in integration is another actual way to say it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I wasn't was disillusioned a... with yoga. I was okay. dis- disillusioned with my place and what I could offer within what was considered and called yoga. Okay, so just to differentiate yeah, that there's a difference between true disillusion. I, I don't think I could ever be disillusioned in the practice and the benefit of what I believe to be yoga. It's, it's the... It's the inability to convey that, to have students that are really um, interested in studentship. It's not something in the West that we do. Like, we want to go to school and make straight A's and get a good job and then get on with it, right? Get on with it. Just get on with my life. I just want to, like, and then I can just have fun and, like, go on vacations and I'm going to get my 401k and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You did go to Los Angeles. Uh, thank you. Um, no, so Rolfing, you you bring that experience oh, and, and, yeah, and that so studentship, studentship, right? right. Back um, into and, it, and it's a one-on-one format. It's right. a one-on-one format, and the people who come to be Rolfed, they pay a substantial amount of money. They make a commitment, and they show up, and they strip down to their underwear. And they walk in front of me and they get on a table and we work and it's quiet and it's intimate and it's personal. You, you talked about uh, that experience giving you confidence. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the, the things that are popular in the drop-in format of yoga are not necessarily the things that are the most um, potent or beneficial long-term for the practitioner. We, mm. we love a good show. We love entertainment. We love to feel good. Endorphins are awesome. None of, that's, uh, none of that's bad, but very little of it gets at the, the, the aims of yoga, the, the deeper, um, and again, deeper is not better, but it's what I'm interested in. Okay, I'm interested mm. in lasting global change. And not change because we're bad, but change because we have a birthright, which is, which is greater than we can perceive of. Our capacity to love is so much greater than we can conceive of because of the limitations of our likes and dislikes and the patterns of our consciousness, our childhood, our trauma, all that stuff that's just limiting. It's like the blinders are on and we're going, we're autopilot, you know, all the time just trying to get through the day and on to the next entertainment and distraction. So um, I was trying before I left for rolfing school to bring forward what I believed was the most effective work within that context of that large framework of dropping classes. And I felt like I was always bargaining with people. Okay, oh. I'll give you a little bit of what you want and then I'm going to get you to do a little bit of what I think maybe you should do. And that was like this, this constant, uh, like trying to convince people. I mean, I had to convince people every day of what yoga even was. And then we had to agree to try to do it together. And then it started all over the next day because it'd be different people and they weren't cons- it wasn't consistent. And, you know, so this process of going there and working one-on-one with people and really one of the things about rolfing that's fascinating is that we understand that change um if you want to get a body to really be affected sometimes the best thing you can do is the smallest possible thing Mm -hmm. with the most awareness that will have this far-reaching change whereas the big overt thing that you do that seems like the most profound, you know, you know, handstand into a drop back. If you know what the drop back is, it just means you like let your feet fall to the ground and you're in a back bend, you know, that what's important is subtlety and patience and a lot of awareness and like, and like backing off of the overt effort 
and keeping with a very disciplined attention. So you're very, it's not that it's not disciplined. It requires an immense amount of energy and focus, but a whole lot less effort on the grandiosity that we see on Instagram of yoga. Well, yeah, it was interesting when you talked about like silence. Oh, yeah. And and the power. Turning the music off. Right. The power of silence. Yeah. And the power of subtlety. And it's like, it seems like you came back from that experience with not needing to do and having confidence that just being yeah. silence uh, was powerful and you had confidence in it. Yeah. I, for years, had this idea that I should turn the music off when I taught. But I was known for making really cool playlists. And you know, you can use music to evoke. And music is powerful and I love it. And you can use it to evoke these emotional experiences. So I used music in that way to evoke and elicit this sort of theatrical experience and journey for people, which is powerful. But again, ultimately, my intuition said, you need to turn the music off. Use your words precisely. Use your hands lovingly. And use silence as an element of this practice. It needs to be there. These people have whole lives that they're bringing into this practice. And instead of just taking them into this, you know, feel good slash cry it out slash feel good again at the end experience where I'm I'm steering it. I'm like the mm. theatrical, you know, uh, the guy behind the curtain you know, I'm, I'm Oz giving you this show. Instead of that, what if I really truly know my, my weight and my gravity and my sorrow and my story? And what if I know that you have yours too? And what if I acknowledge that the only thing that I really have to do that is of service to you is create the space for your wisdom to arise? That's the holding Beautiful. the space, right? Yeah, yeah but it, and it, it sounds like it's easy yeah. to hold space for people but they don't like it. They don't, yeah. they, they, people make, they make nasty faces. They get up and leave. They cry. They don't come back for four months. Or they, I've had people tell me recently, I can't take your class anymore yeah. right now because every time I take it, I lose my shit. Huh. And I'm like, I, you know, I think it's a really chill practice. I you know, it's so interesting. Uh, it's the same thing with when, when I talk to people about meditation. One of the most common answers I get or comments from people is I tried meditating and wow I don't want to look in there again yeah it's a, and and rightly so it's, it can be challenging it can be challenging but knowing that that what's on the other side of that is liberating is liberating it's, it's interesting so much. silence is just such a, a David White who you know John is one yeah. of my favorite poets, poets. yeah, yeah. And I've had the opportunity to listen to him on, on multiple occasions. And he will recite a verse and then stop. Mm-hmm. Let it linger. Let it linger. And the first time I heard him, I mean, he paused for such a long period that it was awkward. <laughs> and then, you know, as you got comfortable with his cadence, you realized that was just so intentional. Paul. Yeah, because he was teaching you, you know, that in the Tao Te Ching, it says those who speak do not know and those who know do not speak. Right. Hmm. So as much as the poet is a wordsmith, the teacher is the, the harbinger of silence. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they, they have to be. Well, we have unfortunately run out of time. Ta-da! Um, but fortunately, we did have this time together. So um, thank you so much for being here and for taking part in the evolving conversation of what yoga is and where yoga is going. I think uh, the people who practice with you all benefit from it. And it's been 
personally really uh, rewarding, and I know there's a lot of other people who would echo that sentiment. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story. Mm. And I just thought it was interesting uh, what what you wrote at the oh, end. Yeah. Um, I want to leave our guest with this: my future self, doing less, feeling more, being quiet. Just thought that was a beautiful <laughs> description of the future. I love it. Yeah. 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 So thank you. Thank you. we're going to head out with a song by My Brightest Diamond called Be Brave. I am a bird in water, a whale on sand. I am the flood, the fire, the oil spill. I'm feeling scared and I am overwhelmed. And so I don my...
That was My Brightest Diamond with Be Brave. It's John Duckworth, Alexopoulos. And uh, we were here today with Kelly Jean Moore from Mission Yoga. Um, and I think it's worth repeating the line that you quoted at the end where she said, um, future self, doing less, feeling more, being quiet. Pretty powerful stuff. Ah, what a beautiful conversation. I mean, I, to, for me, that's why I do this show. I mean, like, yeah, uh, the power of her story um, and how she's transformed it um, in, and created her own narrative. And now, you know, creating spaces for other people to, uh, to experience similar change. Yeah. It's just powerful stuff. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, just that, you know, the process that she went through in order to begin the process of healing herself is the uh, same process that she's trying to share with others, you know, because it was so meaningful to her. And, and you know, that just really, you know, that's, a, that's such a win-win all the way around, you know. And to be able to share that story with others, to say, like, look, this is how she got to this place where you might walk into one of her classes and think, man, she's really put together and, and she says the right things and she owns this yoga studio and is doing really well and, and it's all true. And um, it hadn't, didn't come easy and it didn't come out of a path that you would think would lead you straight to where she is now. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's deep, it's powerful. It's obviously been you know, totally life-altering for her. Mm -hmm. um, and I would imagine at some level it's got to be uh, challenging to, like, share that space and to maybe not have other people sort of, you know, um, um, you know, sort of the drop-in type of client, that they're not there this day, oh, you know, yeah. the, the commitment. And uh, I think she's done a... She's pivoted in a way of not having that... Friction. Um, yeah, yeah. And because of that, I think that most people, when they do find Mission Yoga mm -hmm. and they do start taking classes from her, if they are the drop-in kind that mm -hmm. kind of come and go, they aren't anymore uh, because right. they get it in, right. a, in a deeper way. And, right. and they're like, oh, cool, I get this. I'm going right. to come in more regularly and see what this is all about. Because as she describes it, um, this thing called yoga is really just trying to make sense of what it means to be human. Um, and if you're curious about that, uh, there's a really rich, large space to dive into. Right, right. <laughs> and she's happy to be there and hold your hand yeah. and, and talk you through it or be quiet. <laughs> Let some silence. Echo. Silence, so powerful. There's so many, I can't, you know, so many things she said that I think are powerful, but... Uh, just you know, silence is is a powerful tool, really mm -hmm. is. Um, so, thank you, John. Uh, yeah, for for inviting her to the show. Absolutely. Um, thank you to the listeners for spending another hour of your time with us. Hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Um, thank you to Ohm Radio ninety six point three on the dial and FM. it's uh, online at ohmradio ninety six three dot org. And of course, you can find us. After it airs on the radio, just search Call to Adventure on SoundCloud or iTunes. And if you want to know more about Kelly Jean and her yoga studio, you can just go online to wearemissionyoga.com. Cheers.
And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.